Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 13. Are you tired of linear, non-interactive television, Mr. Adams? Don't even know what linear, non-interactive television means, Mr. Adams? Are you tired, Mr. Adams, of the sort of television that just happens at you? That you just sit in front of like a couch potato that doesn't involve you? Come on, interact with me. Wait a minute. Yes, what is it you want to know? Who the hell are you? Me. It's Tom Baker, that's who it is. As in, Doctor Who, Tom Baker, the one with the fantastic scarf. And Mr. Adams is Douglas Adams, the man who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, among many other fantastic things. And this program that you're listening to right now, this is Hyperland. It's this incredible video created by Douglas Adams in 1990, right about the same time the first web browsers were being created. This person, Tom Baker, he's basically playing an AI version of Google. I am merely a simulacrum, an artificial and completely customizable personality, and I only exist as what we call an application in your computer. I have the honor to provide instant access to every piece of information stored digitally anywhere in the world. Any picture or film, any sound, any book, any statistic, any fact, any connection between anything you care to think of. You have only to tell me, and it will be my humble duty to find it for you and to present it to you for your interactive pleasure. Is there anything I can do so for you So realize now, this is in 1990, and if you're like me, you often think that 1990 was 10 years ago, but no. We're talking 20 years ago. We're talking before web browsers. We're talking before websites, really. People were still using bulletin boards and uh, other weird things. In fact, most websites didn't even come around until the mid-90s and uh, those were very primitive but this thing predicts Wikipedia it predicts YouTube, it predicts iPads it predicts touchscreens, it predicts so much about the internet that wouldn't come about for not 10 years but 20 years later and that's really amazing because it has a very utopian feel to it, it has a very like look how amazing the world is going to be in the future and how much better it's going to be there right now and most things that have that utopian feel aren't, um, well, they aren't very good at predicting what the future will be like, uh, whether it's something like flying cars or it's just something like, you know, curing diseases or whatever. Oftentimes they just don't get it right. When it comes to the internet, things often really get it wrong. If you think about movies like The Net or Johnny Mnemonic or stuff like that, they, they never got the internet right. And that's why I love Douglas Adams. And I hate that he, that he, he died at 49 of a heart attack before he was able to see all the things he was predicting come come true. This is his last interview in 2001. Listen to how amazing and human and wonderful he was when it came to predicting the future. And, um, and, 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 and everybody was in touch with everybody else. So that's what we kind of lost in the 20th century. And, and uh, so um, effectively, 
we, we, we can't do what we used to do simply because there are now so damn many of us. But what our technologies are beginning to do is put us back in touch with each other much more intimately in ways that we used to be. And that's what we've got to kind of readjust to. So, I mean, I think the 20th century, with all of its non-interactivity and its kind of totalitarian forms of control from the sort of top down, will, 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 will suddenly seem like a sort of nasty memory. Um, and I think that the, you know, the technologies of the 21st century are basically recreating on much larger scale the intimacies of previous forms of human experience. So that's 2001, and it's, uh, it's a good solid decade into what Douglas Adams imagined we would have. But it is before the iPhone. It is before Facebook. It is before Twitter. It is before the current incarnation. And with the current incarnation of the web, there are sort of two sides. I mean, there are plenty of people in the middle, but it's also highly polarized. You have people who are still utopian in their vision of um, what the what the future will be like with the web. In fact, that utopian vision hasn't changed very much from um, people like Timothy Leary, uh, the Harvard psychologist who did a lot of LSD. He, uh, he was the, one of the first proponents of the idea of the cyberpunk, and he made this really strange uh, guided meditation called How to Operate Your Brain and distributed that in the early 1990s. And uh, here's, a, here's a little excerpt from that. In the 60s, we said power to the people. In the 90s, in the digital multimedia 90s, we say power to the pupil. <laughs> I love that so much. In the 60s, we said power to the people, but in the multimedia 90s, we'll say power to the pupil and that's sort of the main message of timothy leary during that cyberpunk era was the idea that uh we've been told what to watch you've had the uh tonight's uh, viewing schedule has been selected ahead of time and you have no say in it and uh but in the future you'll be able to have this vast buffet of data to sort through and of course it came true and people like timothy leary people like douglas adams they tend to have this utopian vision of what would happen when all when all that came about and, but then a, a couple of years ago, we started getting the naysayers who have always been around. There have always been naysayers saying that the, uh, the, the coming digital revolution will be apocalyptic in some way or another. But a few years ago, we started getting this um, new kind of dystopian vision. And uh, probably the most well-known voice in that new dystopian vision would be Nicholas Carr, who wrote a book called The Shallows which came out of an article he wrote for the Atlantic called is Google making us stupid. And they misspelled stupid on the cover to drive that point home. Um, so here's Nicholas Carr on a program called the agenda in 2011, basically explaining his, his main viewpoints. I, I mean, if the, if the printed pray, printed page filtered out distractions, screened us from interruptions and encouraged attentive thought, the internet, the, the, the network com connected computer screen does exactly the opposite. It bombards us with distractions. And that, you know, that's its great quality as a technology. It's a multimedia system. It, it, it's great for exchanging messages very quickly. It's great for alerting us to all sorts of information. But the downside of that is it keeps us 
uh, pretty much in a perpetual state of distraction, constant interruptions. And as, as the internet has shrunk down to the size of tablets and iPhones and Blackberries, we tend to carry this technology with us all day long. And what happens is we never get any encouragement or any reward for concentrated thought, for paying attention to one thing without interruption. And as a result, I think, for all the benefits it gives us, and there are a lot of benefits, obviously, to the net, I think it encourages in us and in society as a whole a more superficial way of thinking. All the stresses on getting as much information as so possible. So you have the dystopians no on one side, on like Nicholas Carr, who uh, that says that the Internet is making us shallow and that we don't think deeply and we don't concentrate enough. And you have the utopians on the other side that say that the internet has connected us all together and that we are now uh, entering into a new age of man and, and many of our problems will be solved. So who's right? Who's wrong? And when I, th when I wonder about that question, whenever I see people like Nicholas Carr come around, I'm reminded of an essay by Douglas Adams. In fact, this, is, this essay led me to Hyperland, which we listened to earlier. And the essay is How to Stop Worrying and Love the Internet. And you can find it at douglasadams.com. Here's a little excerpt. I'm going to read the three principles that Douglas Adams put out way back in 1999. Number one, everything that's already in the world when you're born is just normal. Number two, anything that gets invented between then and before you turn 30 is incredibly exciting and creative. And with any luck, you can make a career out of it. And number three, anything that gets invented after you're 30 is against the natural order of things and the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it until it's been around for about 10 years and when it gradually turns out to be all right, really. So we haven't quite had Facebook and the iPhone and Twitter for 10 years. So the jury, I think, is out on those things. And I don't think I agree with Nicholas Carr. But I can't be sure. Because predicting the future is very difficult. So what will technology do to us? Is it good? Is it bad? Is technology making us smarter or is technology making us stupid? And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a new topic in the realm of self-delusion and then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie and reading some self-delusion news. This episode is about technology and its effect on our minds. This episode's guest is Clive Thompson. He is the author of a book called Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better. So as you might have guessed from the title of his book, Clive's perspective is somewhat in opposition to that of Nicholas Carr, who, uh, as you remember, Carr laments that the internet is the end of the book and the end of thinking deeply and that instant access to all human knowledge and opinion is uh, sucking that knowledge out of our heads and replacing our opinions with that of others. But what's great about Clive's book, and we'll go into that in a moment, is although it respectfully disagrees with the naysayers like Nicholas Carr and naysayers before him who have all been proved wrong by uh, the the unfolding of reality, uh, specifically I love, uh, if you can find it, it's it's you can go to um, Google and type in Why the Web Won't Be Nirvana by Clifford Stoll. It's a great article from 1995 that um, gets passed around every every year or two. And pretty much every single sentence in the article is wrong. <laughs> it predicted that the internet would not be that big of a deal. Um, let me read a little bit from it. Um, 
visionaries see a future of telecommuting workers, interactive libraries, and multimedia classrooms. They speak of electronic town meetings and virtual communities. Commerce and business will shift from offices and malls to networks and modems, and the freedom of digital networks will make government more democratic. Baloney. Do our computer pundits lack all common sense? <laughs> it's great. It goes on uh, from there to talk to basically talk about every single thing that we actually do with the internet today as being something that will never be done by anyone ever. It's uh, sort of the opposite of Hyperland. It's uh, 100% wrong about every aspect of the internet. Check it out. It's uh, why the web won't be Nirvana. Uh, Google that up on the thing called Google that he thought would not be that big of a deal. So yeah, what I like about Clive Thompson's book is that it doesn't, uh, although it it says it is it respectfully disagrees with all of that sort of naysaying, it doesn't go all the way over into the other side and says that uh, you know Twitter is going to solve all of our world problems or that uh, the certain technologies that are unfolding are going to end um, poverty and going to end uh, you know it's going to put us in this Star Trek: The Next Generation world just by having this technology is going to change things. But a lot of people have said that sort of thing. Um, what comes up in arguments uh, for or against new technology? What you see very often was when a new technology becomes popular. Um, and Clive brings this up in his book. Um, so many people throughout the ages, when a new technology arrives, they either jump right on board and see it as the savior of the species or immediately gather up intellectual pitchforks and torches and set about warning humanity that everything they love is about to be destroyed. And whenever a new technology becomes popular enough that the people who get paid to have opinions start telling everyone those opinions, the same two logical fallacies appear over and over again. And this goes back to the first philosophers. Now, a logical fallacy for the uninitiated is sort of a, a bug in the code of a, that a human being uses when creating an argument for or against something. And they even pop up when you argue with yourself. Most of them are, well, they were understood way, way back, like back when you could get invited to a math party thrown by Pythagoras. And back then it was expected that learned people would argue and debate over what was and was not true. So over time, the same errors in logic would appear in those arguments. And so often they so often appeared that they were labeled and categorized and defined. One of those logical fallacies is the argumentum ad antiquitatum, and which is sort of sort of Latin for the argument from antiquity. It's also called the appeal to tradition or the appeal to antiquity. Um, basically, it's the argument that things have always been done in a certain way or that some piece of old technology is still used, uh, is still very useful and it's still well made. So there's no need to change or adopt something new. Um, now sometimes it appears as an argument against something because there isn't something that resembles it in the past or not resembles it enough for people to recognize. So you often see this when people argue for something like astrology or um, some old law or policy or anything historic or ancient or traditional. And it's a fallacy because just because something is old and revered and respected doesn't mean that it's good or correct or worth keeping around or not worth modifying. And just because something is new, that doesn't mean that it's bad. And of course, it seems really obvious when you point out that this is a fallacy, but you see it all the time. The, uh, the neurologist, Stephen Novella, who runs the Neurologica blog and hosts the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, he has this great line about the argument from antiquity, which he used in, a, in an essay about um, acupuncture, which, by the way, 
Acupuncture does not stand up to scientific scrutiny, but we can talk about that in another episode. Anyway, he said, and this is a quote from Stephen Novella, philosophy-based modalities are not tested by time because they are not tested. In other words, a lot of things that people think have stood the test of time, like acupuncture, have been around for a long, long time, but in that time, they've never actually been tested to see if they work or are real. So the phrase, it has stood the test of time, is pretty inaccurate because there's not, there hasn't been a whole lot of testing. Now, on the other side, on the other side of the argument from antiquity, there's another uh, logical fallacy, and it exists in a sort of push-pull antagonism uh, with the argument from antiquity, and that is the argumentum ad novitatum, or the argument from uh, novelty, or the appeal to novelty. And so this is the other argument, and you can totally see where we're going here. This one suggests that old things are dumb just because they're old and that new things are better than old things just because they are new. And this is the one that's very popular in advertising. And you see it also for, uh, diets and, uh, you know, I always think about the 1950s when you hear about this, you know, like new improved progress and, uh, you know, technology, the way of the future. Um, and this is basically what happens, you know, advertising very much wants you to go buy the new thing. And so the new thing is always presented as being a replacement for and better than the old thing. And that's not always true. So these two things are, these two fallacies pull on us. Uh, They're just part of who we are as human beings and we tend to use them in our arguments. Sometimes we think that uh, the old things are better than the new things just because they've been around for a long time. And sometimes we think that the new things are way better than the old things because they just appeared. But uh, the truth is, of course, somewhere in the middle. And that's what I really like about Clive Thompson's book is that he doesn't go really far in either direction. He says, this is what's happening right now. And this is the actual effect it's having on the world. And instead of saying that technology is our savior and that, or that technology is our doom, he says that it's just changing us. It's just changing everything. Things that used to be impossible are now possible. And things that we never thought we could do that were too expensive can now be done or things that would be impossible to do because there weren't, um, there weren't all these connections between us and so on and so on. And what it means is that we have to develop, and he uses this term over and over again, new literacies. And uh, it's just a great book. I want you to check it out. And we're going to talk to him about it right now. So let's introduce this man, Clive Thompson. Who is he? Clive Thompson is a journalist. And in 2002, he was awarded a Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT. And uh, he has a blog called Collision Detection. And he... um, He writes a lot for Wired and New York Times Magazine, and he has this new book out that we're going to discuss right now. Uh, Clive Thompson, you wrote a book called Smarter Than You Think, and um, it's uh, this is a great book to come out right now. I like to to imagine that the book is sort of, um, this is going to be something that people look back on. Uh, I love looking at that, um, paleo technology stuff online where people predicted that in the future, there would be a, uh, we'd have, um, vessels made out of hot air balloons that would take us to our jobs and that sort of thing. And, uh, I really like looking back on that sort of stuff, but I think that your book is sort of, uh, protected in, in, a, in a special kind of way. When you read it, I think it's going to hold up as saying, this is where we were at this period of time in history. And this is the weird things that these are the weird things that people thought at that time period. Um, that's a long introduction to a question that I'm going to ask, which is um, right now, there seems to be a whole lot of panic out there. Um, uh, you read everywhere people, and this has been going on for years. They, um, 
every year someone says something about Google or Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or smartphones or messing with our minds. And I just want to start, I just want to start with Google. Um, a lot of people, I even ask people on my Facebook page to, uh, pose questions to you. And the first, one of the first questions was, is Google making us dumb? Is, uh, having access to Wikipedia and this ocean of information, is this somehow making us lazy intellectually? And so I would say your, your book seems to disagree in every direction possible, but what do you, <laughs> what, what, what do you say when people come right out the gate and ask that question? Well, it, it, it's, it's funny that they asked that they asked you that because that's, that's definitely the one, you know, I, I get it. Um, you know, I, I get when I'm, when I'm walking around and talking about the book and, you know, or at a cocktail party and someone, you know, in a bar and someone, Here's about my book, and they're like, "Wow, so what about this?" And yeah, the 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 worry about mental laziness is is a really big one. The idea that um, because we you know we can sort of turn to Wikipedia or turn to our phone to, to get an answer to a question that that we're somehow sort of sl- our, our brain is becoming slack like an, an empty wine bladder. Um, and uh, um, in a way, you know, the funny thing is when I started the book, I worried a little bit about that myself. Uh, um, I mean, I felt like everyone else this sense of wow, you know, I don't. I don't really remember phone numbers anymore. Like, is is that is that a sort of a metaphor or a metonym for the overall inability of my brain to retain things? Um, but the more I looked both at at sort of the way memory works, and this is something you know you 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 talk a lot about in in, in your work too. Um, the fragility of what I learned was the fragility of human memory is such that we've we've sort of always been really terrible uh, at the details of everyday of 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 knowledge you know like we're really good at retaining the meaning of something you know we study something we read about it we talk about it with someone you know we're good at cementing the gist of it but we're really bad at the details Mm -hmm. um and so historically we've had all these ways of of storing uh you know the details the stuff we want to remember we think we think of a lot of it as happening um you know in paper like you know you know we we write this knowledge down in books and we write it in, in, in you know in in articles and we save them and store them so we can look at them. But the truth is, you know, most of the knowledge we store that's outside of us is stored in other people. Uh, it, it's this thing called uh, transactive memory where like, you know, I, I hang out with my wife a lot. I hang out with my friends, hang out with my workmates. And we gradually sort of subconsciously realize, oh, you know, you're better at remembering the details of state politics than I am. And I'm better at remembering, you know, Fahrenheit, you know, Celsius conversion. And, and she's better at remembering the plots of, you know, Three's Company. So so we, we each sort of rely on each other to remember these details. And that's why, you know, if you've ever been in a, in, a, in a relationship for a long time, you get in these weird fights where it's like, how come you can never remember, you know, where the tax forms are? And, you know, and the other person says, how come you can never remember the dates of my birthday? And, it, and that's because we're, we're actually using each other to help remember these things because our, our brains are dreadful, dreadful, the details. Um, and this has been something we've done for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, it's why socially we're smarter when we're around each other. You know, we, we, we actually, we're not just social thinkers, we're actually social rememberers. And so what started to happen was that, you know, for years, you know, again, we had these, you know, we had these cool technologies outside of our bodies, books and whatnot with knowledge stored, but <laughs> we're kind of lazy. So we don't look at them very often. I mean, um, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, when I was a kid, I had a, I had a, we had an edition of it, and and you know if you were, to make yourself look smart, you always had one, but you never looked at it. I mean, Encyclopedia Britannica they did a, a study of their um of their users and found out that the average person, uh, the average user of Encyclopedia Britannica in print looked at it once a year. <laughs> Uh, so, because it's faster just to get a kind of partial answer from your from your buddy yeah. nearby, uh, um, you know. Now, 
what happened, so this is a long way of answering your question. What started happening, is, so we've always done this. Our brains have always been bad at the details. Um, and uh, what we started doing is now that we actually have these very f- much, much more fast-paced devices, we can integrate them a li- almost in the way of the social flow that we have people. Um, and so that's, that's great, and it's, you know, but with, with hazards, right? I mean, the, the great part is Wikipedia is better at remembering the details than my buddy is, you know, like, you know, how many drone strikes have there been in Pakistan? You know, he's, he's only got a rude guess at that. Wikipedia has the real answer, you know. Um, the downside is, you know, we re- since we're relying on these tools a little bit more, it's incumbent upon us to understand a little bit more of how they work, you know, um, to, you know, to educate and train ourselves. And that's something schools are starting to have to realize they have to do. These are going to be the cognitive tools the same way that libraries were and dictionaries were. And you have to learn how to use this stuff. Otherwise, it, you know, you won't be as good at it, basically. So, so, so the, the long answer is, um, if you're worried that your brain is bad at the details, um, your brain's always been bad at the details. It was, it was like that, you know, long before the internet yeah, came along. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember. I'm 45. I remember, I remember being around before the internet was there. Somebody asked a question, nobody had an answer. You just stared at each other and then the conversation <laughs> moved right. on. <laughs> right. It'd be like, uh, you know, um, hey, uh, let's, get, let's get down to brass tacks. And somebody says, hey, what does that mean, get, get down to brass tacks? And then if it's pre-internet, the, the next thing that happens is, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and every once in a while, I'll be, I'll be in a completely non-internet uh, area. Uh, um, my mother is the, one of the most offline people on the planet. Uh, she lives in northern Ontario. She's like 78. She only got voicemail like five years ago. Uh, never, never used a computer. So... My wife and I are up there at Christmas a couple of years ago, and there's no internet at all. So we're like a week with no internet, and our phones, you know, not getting service. So you know, we're not, we're not, we're not doing that pinging thing. And I discovered what happened is that when you're unable to look something up, you you, you think that it'll stimulate your curiosity in your brain, but what actually happened to me is it shut my curiosity down. Like we we were watching um, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and you know, and and we're looking at the woman who's you know co-starring, and we're like, huh. I wonder what happened to her afterwards. And of course, you can't look it up. So you just, you know, you don't go any further. <laughs> and, and the 10th time that happens, what happens is your brain stops asking that question. Like I, ju- I just stopped wondering about stuff because there was, no, because there was, there was never an opportunity to get an answer. I saw, I, my curiosity just shut down basically. And by the end of the week, I was just staring blankly at walls, you know? <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I believe strongly, I say this in my book, that it's good to get away from the internet for regular periods. I mean, I go offline on the weekends because it's important important to have these to sort of you know a sort of cognitive diversity you know enjoy the stuff that you get online but enjoy the stuff that's offline but a really prolonged period offline i mean i i i, I don't think it i don't think it stimulates any particular brilliance uh, particularly so what is um why does this keep coming why do people keep worrying about this one of, one of the things that keeps coming up in your book um and i've seen this in other places too i've written about it a little bit myself is that there's this no um there's sort of like this cycle it's, uh, that comes around that has gone back to antiquity where um, whenever the you – can, you can put like a push pin in the timeline of human history and, um, and no matter where you put that push pin, you'll see that whatever just appeared, whether it's books or television or even like written language, uh, there will be people who will start uh, saying this is going to ruin everything and then there will be people who will put out that this is going to solve all human problems. And you sort of write how that neither prediction is ever really quite – right or wrong so mm, yeah. so i guess it's a two-part question why 
why does why do you think that keeps happening, and how is it neither right nor wrong? Well, uh, uh, the reason why it keeps happening is, is 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 rooted in some of the biases that you you've written about in your books, which is that we we heavily overweight the present, like we heavily we heavily overweight the normal the normalcy and the persistence of what we're doing right now. We believe that the way that we grew up is the way things uh, you know people always behaved, and there's something inherently normal about the way we communicate now. Um, and so anything new that comes along tends to freak us out, and and new media. Historically, generally, what they've done, more or less, is um, they, they sort of they've created a, a new surplus every time. They've created more communication, you know. So writing comes along, you know, three thousand, you know, five to three thousand years ago, and um, and it, and it, and it, it certainly produces this, this this eruption of externalized thinking, um, and. And so, you know, Socrates looked at this and he was like, wow, this is the death of memory. We're not going to bother to remember anything um, if, if, if we write things down. He was also worried about the death in a very interesting way of, um, of dialogue. Um, if, I write, if I write a book and give it to you and you look at the book and go, wow, I think this is stupid. You cannot argue with the book. The book cannot respond to you, right? And so for, for, the, for, you know, for Socrates, uh, knowledge was formed in debate. And uh, if you could not debate with someone and argue, you could not have wisdom. So, so he was, you know, he it, basically it was a challenge to the way that he had done things. And and the same the same same pattern happens over and over again. He was sort of unable to realize that when we were able to externalize knowledge, we you know in books and writing, you know, we no longer had to remember everything. We would have recourse to accessing a much huger array. Uh, of of knowledge that that any individual could if they had to keep it in their fragile minds, and so we we would get libraries and things like that. He he, he wasn't it was he wasn't exactly wrong, you know. Like he some of the things he was worried about were right, you know. Like it's true that we stopped memorizing long streams of poetry, and it's true that you couldn't argue with a book, but there were benefits that came out of that that um, that. It took us a long time, but we, mac- you know, we sort of maximized and we, we had this flood of books. So, so the same thing happens over and over again. Every media creates a surplus and we're never sure how we're going to deal with all the new stuff. And, and it's, it's not just new, it's usually more. I mean, you know, the Gutenberg Press comes along and there's an explosion of books. And, you know, Gottfried Leibniz, you know, the mathematician basically says this is a barbarous flood that is going <laughs> to drown out the good stuff. And, he, and again, he was sort of right. Like when, once you get, once you're in the, in the medieval period, you get more books than any individual can read. You have to start figuring out how to organize them. And so this is the exact flow, you know, surplus and then panic and we figured out how to organize it. You know, same thing happened with radio and the telephone. Um, same thing happened with, uh, uh, with TV and the internet. Um, so each time, and right now we're in the middle of this, of this, you know, how do we organize this stuff panic? Um, the, the, thing, the thing I find heartening is that even as the panics recur over history, so do the solutions. The, the people, the, the things we did in the 15th the 17th century to organize information are shockingly similar to what we're doing now. Um, back when they had, you know, books come along and more than anyone could ever could ever consume, they started uh, they started blogging. Basically, there were these guys who'd create these things called florilegia, which were encyclopedias, and they would they would go through books and they would literally with scissors cut out like the best paragraph and paste it into this huge anthology that they wouldn't sell to a rich person as a way for them to access the best knowledge that right. was out there. Um, and that's exactly like blogging. Um, they also, you know, and, and scribes would go, to, would go to churches and sit down to these amazing, amazing priests giving amazing sermons. They would scribble down their notes and then circulate them later. They were live blogging the sermons, right? So all these, all these techniques we do today 
are very similar to the way that we've dealt with panics before. Um, right. so, so some of the, some it's surplus. The other one, the other one is that anything that changes the way that people socialize makes people really lose their crap. And there's a, um, there's a, there's an Intel researcher, uh, Genevieve Bell, who formalizes as, as three rules that I think is fantastic. And this is a great one to think about. She goes, why does some, why do some technologies provoke particular freakouts? And she says, well, it's whenever, it's whenever they change three things. It has to change, um, the way we relate to space. The way, uh, uh, the way we relate to time and the way we relate to each other. And if you hit all three with a technology, people absolutely freak out and they think that you know, the world's going to end. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting is that you can, you can use those rules to predict what's going to happen. Like, why did we freak out about the mobile phone but not the fax machine? Well, the, fa- the, the, mobile, the mobile phone hit upon space, time, and the way we relate to each other. The fax machine hit upon space and time, but it didn't really change the way we relate to each other because it was never used as a person-to-person communications tool. So unless you honk all three of those buttons, um, you don't freak out. And, that, and uh, the internet slams all three of those oh, yeah. in, the most, in the most outrageous way possible. So that's some of what we see with those cycles. You know, long-winded answer. I love that. Uh, no, that's great. I love that. Um, I remember watching um, Back to the Future 2 and how there, how there was a fax machine in every room. And um, Marty McFly gets fired via fax machine. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and, yes. They, and they were so yes. like, but it's, that's what's well, interesting about that. And you see that through all these uh, things that try to predict how we're going to interact with the, with the future and with technology is that, um, you know, behavior is pretty set. I mean, it, it changes mm-hmm. slow, That's right. slow That's right. very slowly over like evolutionary time. But like um, as the technologies keep churning, the, are the same sort of behaviors are at play and, and the same biases, the same responses. Yes. So yes. like um, we and what's weird is sometimes a technology will come along that will take a behavior that used to cost a whole lot to uh, display or to enjoy yes. and will just reduce the cost of that so low that all of a sudden it explodes. I talk whenever I have a chance to talk in front of people and they wonder about politics and stuff, we, I mentioned that it's almost kind of like an invasive species that, uh, you know, confirmation bias is a great example of like confirmation bias never had anything like Google to, uh, <laughs> yes, to, yes, exactly. To, and once, once you pair confirmation bias with Google, you get this totally new way of, of being yep. a person. And that's going yep. to happen all the time whenever new technology comes along and plays with these old behaviors. So it's it's good to know about those old behaviors because new technology is going to interact with the same behavioral routines over and over again. I, I, no, I, absolutely. Confirmation bias is, is really one of the big dangers of the internet, right? I mean, it, we always had a, it, although I, I go back and forth in this because I've had some political thinkers say to me, um, you know, homophily, you know, that right, right. like seeking out like is, is a big problem. Problem. You know, we, 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 you know, that's, that's, that's a type of confirmation bias. We, we seek out people that agree with us. And, and I was sort of like, well, you know, yeah, don't we kind of do that, you know, more now online? They're kind of like, well, you know, don't discount how homophilic the physical world was beforehand. Mm-hmm. I mean, like when you were limited to what your dad told you at the dinner table for your political knowledge, um, <laughs> things are pretty bad. Like they, there was, there was almost no chance of colliding into a seriously alternative opinion in, in, in your, in your small town. Um, even people that, uh, you know, and whereas studies have shown, Dana Boyd did this great study where she looked at a, a Twitter debate over the um, really one of the most uh, amazingly uh, politically charged thing you could possibly imagine, which is like uh, uh, the killing of George Tillard, the abortion doctor. Um, and she studied uh, uh, Twitter conversations about it because there was, there was a hashtag made for it, right? But what happened is that the, the hashtag, because it was essentially, you know, just the Tillard shooting or whatever, wound up 
uh, bringing all these very pro and very anti-abortion people together uh, in, in this conversation. And when she analyzed the actual interactions, like a, a, a significant like mi minority, I think like 40 percent or thereabouts of the interactions were, were across that divide. Now, as she points out, they were not great interactions because Twitter is not really a tool for deliberative democracy, right? Um, but uh, but there's no way in heck these people would have in their own communities been, been even aware of each other's existence. So it, it, there, there are some situations in which um, it, it's very it's very context dependent uh, whether or not any particular tool reinforces or works against confirmation bias, I think. Yeah, um, I think and my thinking on that is sort of coming full circle, but and I was glad to see this in your book because I was like, hey, that confirms my beliefs. Um, but it was, it was that uh, sort of like um, we're being slammed into each other more than ever before. So that, yes. that means we're being challenged. Our opinions and our, our political beliefs are being challenged more than they ever have been before. And that's that's got to change things about uh, the way we see each other, the way we see yes. the world. Um, you know, you can't just sit in the deep south and think what you think based off your culture without also knowing what the rest of the country thinks too. Yeah. And yeah. that that is weird, you know. Um, and you, what you write about, I love this part of your book. This is so cool. The idea that um, because of what you call public thinking, that these old notions, uh, these like old Greek notions of dialogue and debate and rhetoric are now flowing back into our daily lives because we end up in arguments more often than we ever have before, or at least we, we can on our social media and everything, we confront people who, yeah, yeah who, yeah. uh, so I think that, um, what's neat about that is that, and it, not only do we have to relearn those, um, rules of logic and, uh, relearn the rules of rhetoric and everything and find out that they've always been around. But we also, I think that encourages, it's encouraged a lot of recent interest into wanting to know well, why do people think this way when we get into yes. so yes. I think that's yes. sort of part of the surge of um, interest in these there's so many books about cognitive biases and stuff yeah, no, I agree one of the reasons I think one of the reasons why we've seen in the last 10 years a surge of interest uh, in your books and other books about cognitive biases and the processes of thinking is that we, we, we're able to see thinking more than we ever could before. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 it's on display. People are out there. They're, they're talking about their stuff. They're, in, they're arguing about stuff in, in forums. They're blogging about it. They're, they're conducting conversations on uh, underneath, you know, photos and Instagram, right? I mean, there's just this explosion of writing. I, I tried to quantify this in my book. It, it, total back of the, of the napkin uh, um, number, but I, I, I pulled it together by talking to a bunch of internet services and academics, and I, I, I figured that there's roughly 3.6 trillion words being written a day, you know, which which is pretty much equivalent to the the size of the uh, of of the Library of Congress every day. Now, that's obviously not all good words. I mean, it's probably Sturgeon's law, like 90% mm -hmm. of it is crap. But but the um but but the 10% that the pers uh, that's at the top of the peak is is easily as good as stuff that I'm paid to write. Um, and, uh, and, and it's simply more visible. Like, um, I, like, you know, I, I think this is also why subcultures have become more relevant. When I was, um, when I was playing video games, you know, in the nineties, you know, uh, I, I would, I was aware that like at any one point in time, there's like, there was, there was like 4 million people playing Counter-Strike at any one point in time, right? And, and then, and I didn't really watch TV. I just didn't watch any TV. I, I stopped watching it in college. And so I'd open up Entertainment Weekly and the cover would be, you know, friends. Like, you know, the whole nation's talking about friends. And I'm like, <laughs> the whole nation's not talking about friends. I, I don't watch the show. And, and at any one point in time, there's more people playing Counter-Strike than there are watching friends. And so I became aware that like, y there can be these huge vibrant niches that mainstream 
traditional coastal media just completely ignore. And so what happened over the next decade is that the internet arrived and people began talking about the stuff that they're interested in. And it turns out that everyone is way weirder than we ever imagined. Right. Uh, and, the, <laughs> and the stuff they're interested in is stranger and they're all finding each other and they're setting up, you know, their, you know, Ravelry knitting, knitting forum, 500,000 people in there talking about knitting. You know, this is not something that, you know, the New York Times or Entertainment Weekly or the Washington Post had on their agenda for, you know, a cultural conversation. And to me, uh, you know, people worry about the fragmenting of culture, but, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 f- I frankly uh, think there's something delightful and, and powerful and wonderful about the explosion of this thinking because uh, we, are, we are simply more aware of the diversity of human passion right now, which I think is great. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's a lot of the critics of this sort of thing think that it's being created by the technology, but and it's usually... If, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's usually it's just being revealed or enhanced or amplified, um, not necessarily created out of nothingness. Um, I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, like I, you know, uh, there were always weird little subcultures. I would, you know, as a kid, I was a nerdy kid. I was into origami. Um, I, I couldn't find really anyone, you know, at my at my high school or. Or, or middle school or elementary school interest in origami. But by the time I got to the University of Toronto, you know, it's 45,000 students, um, you know, there's an origami club. So you, once you have 45,000 people, there is that, that subculture emerges. Once you get the internet together and you give them these, these sort of new literate tools like YouTube um, and animation to help, you know, illustrate how you do these folds, everything just goes absolutely bonkers because now all the Russian origami people and all the Japanese origami people and the people in, in Atlanta are in origami and I are all talking online. And, and you know what's really interesting too? This cuts this question we were talking earlier about political bias. Um, uh, Joseph Kahane is this wonderful um, researcher who looks at sort of, I guess, exposure to different walks of life and different worldviews. And he finds that Facebook is, for, and he looks at teenagers, it's, it's actually bad for, for exposure to diverse views. Um, and that's because you're, you're, again, it's homophily. You're mostly hanging out with the people you already know kind of reasonably well. Um, whereas whenever he, he followed a teenager's uh, wanderings into a community of interest, like their hobby, um, it massively opened up them to all sorts of different people from different walks of right. life. Now, now they're clustering, not about their friendship circle or their town, they're all there because they care about origami. And so I, I'm in these origami forums and people, you know, they get bored of origami after all. They start talking about politics, start talking about sports, start talking about like their sex lives. And it is just fascinating because they're actually quite civil uh, because they have this common interest. And yet they're from all, it's, you know, octogenarians talking to 21-year-olds. And so for me, one of the things that I, I find uh, uh, frustrating about discussions of the online world is whenever people talk about, you know, why are comments so bad? Well, they're looking at the same nine or ten places. They're looking at newspapers. Newspapers have legendarily bad comments right. because um, they draw in all the kooks from their local communities and they don't do any moderation. Um, and they're also drive-by communities. Nobody's really interested in talking to each other. They, they want to talk to the paper. They want to yell at the world. But you know, I'm of the opinion the vast majority of online conversation is actually not happening in these highly visible, you know, um, because they're put on by famous organizations, um, places like, you know, newspapers. It's actually happening in these weird forums you've never heard of before. That when you peek into them, have, you know, 4,000 people all writing 15,000 words collectively a day, you know? And, 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 and those worlds, when you look at them, are, are not only charming and delightful, um, but they're, I think they're much more healthy uh, and they have much more interesting conversations between people than the, the sort of obvious stuff. And so this is, this is, a, this is a classic, 
you know, frequency bias issue. You know, you, you, because you go to the local paper, you notice a conversation there, but you don't even think about the conversations that are happening outside, outside of that, that purview. Yeah. Um, and you, you speak a lot about how uh, we'll have to have, with all of these tools, with, all, with any new technology, you need um, sort of a new civics. You need a new set of guidelines that we can all uh, abide by that will help us um, communicate better and more um, uh, with more civility and better dialogue. And also, you speak about uh, things like trommeling. I think that's what you said. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. That trommeling, it's, it's a wonderful word. Basically, I mean, when I, when I, when I just, what I just said, I stand by, which is that newspapers have just dreadful comments. But this is not because of anything innate in... I think in necessarily in human nature, the way that some people fear it is, it's because they haven't done any of the social work necessary to create a good conversational space. And, and that's, that's what these three internet thinkers, uh, Kevin Marks, Heather Gold, uh, Deb Schultz, they were, they, were, they were noticing that there are some forums that had amazing conversations, some that had toxic ones. What was the difference? Well, it turned out the difference wasn't anything but technology. There wasn't like some you know, button you can hit that restores civility. It was because in each of these places, there was someone who was, who was, who was doing the social work of, of uh, being in the threads uh, and being the host. They were, they were rewarding the good people, you know, talking to them, saying, hey, that's great. You know, you know, tell me more about that. And they were and they were punishing the the, the bad actors, either telling them you know you're being uh, you're being terrible or banning them. And when you and when someone's doing that social work, it's like it's like tending a social garden. You get the amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tumbling, the thing that's fun about tumbling is that it's 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 a new civic skill, right? And and you can teach it. And in fact, I've been in classrooms where they basically the smart teachers are like, look, the, you know, in the old days we taught kids civics of how to write a letter to the editor, how to write a letter to a politician, how to engage in a debate, how to be a polite person when you're walking down the street, right? And so this is the new civics that we need to teach, which is the, you know, the comportment of yourself online, you know, how to, how to sort of, how to not respond to flames, uh, but to actually be polite in response to flaming. And that almost always diffuses the situation instead of ramping it up. And I've seen these teachers do this and it's fantastic. This is the new civics. You can teach it and it is being taught. Yeah. And and we just happen to be in that transitional period where no one knows what to do exactly yet because it happens so quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. I love when I see someone just respond with a link to the YouTube video that like, it's like an eight second video. It's like, it's okay to not like things. Just don't be a dick about it. It's like, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, a, and people pay it forward. I mean, I think as soon as you see that, you're like, ah, oh, I was doing that. And then you'll do it to someone else in the future. And it like slowly propagates across, you know, whatever network you're in. And, and we, we also, we also have a long, um, a long social history of, 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 there being very tumultuous periods when a, when a new uh, communications protocol comes along. I mean, like, um, you know, you could go back as far as the, the telephone, there was, you know, enormous debate over what's a polite way to talk on the phone, what's a polite way to answer. Um, it was very unsettling to hear a half a log. Um, there's, you know, there's this, if you, here's a great thing for listeners to Google, um, a telephonic conversation by Mark Twain. So it's Mark Twain listening to a telephone conversation <laughs> and he can, and he's like, I can only hear half of this and it's the weirdest thing I've heard in my life. And so it, it, it was really, it was really unusual to feel that. Another, another comparison might be cities like, um, you know, I, 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 early on in my book, I liken the internet to a migration from the rural area to the city. Mm-hmm. So in the 19th century, you get the urbanization, 
of, of the U.S. and of um, and of uh, London and what of the U.K. and it was really unsettling to suddenly be living so close to people, and we had to figure out these new ways of interacting so that we could enjoy the serendipity um, and the creativity that comes from that density without just being worn down by all the social contact. Like how to carve out mental peace in the middle of a howling um, urban chaos. This is what Dickens wrote about. This is what everyone wrote about. And so, in some respects, it's exactly like that today. Um, and uh, and I think uh, I think what we're living the reason one of the reasons why it's unsettling right now is you know no one has those we're making those rules up right now you know we're figuring them out um, and you know we're, we're sort of getting it right only about half the time right. Um, so okay, there's before we run out of time, there's a couple of things I really wanted to ask you. First of all, uh, there's something you wrote about in your book that has stuck with me more than anything else. I keep telling other people about it, uh, and it's it's the fact that. Before we were all online, once you graduated high school or college, uh, well, most people just never wrote another paragraph for basically the rest of their lives. Um, yep. And so could you unpack that for us? What does that, what sure. does that mean? Well, what that, what that means um, is that we are uh, – because we move in this period where – Almost no one wrote anything, um, unless you're unless you're paid to do it, unless you're a journalist or a lawyer writing a lot of memos. Um, you know, most people graduated high school, college, never wrote anything. I asked my mother once, you know, uh, perfectly literate Canadian, but not online. You know, if, when's the last time you wrote a paragraph? And she was, we figured it out, and it was like basically in the seventies. You know, <laughs> um, because if you don't need to, you didn't do it. And certainly, the people that did writing. Even if they did it for work, they were not doing it for their passion, for the stuff that they're interested in. They were not doing it to try and answer an intellectual question. So I think what's happening um, when I when I looked at the sort of the you know the the the, the fairly well known psychology of what it means to express yourself, um, to get your ideas out of your head and down on the page or on the screen, um, I think this, I think what's happening is we're seeing this massive uh, increase in the in the self awareness of our of what's going on in our heads because we're, we're taking it outside of our heads. And we're seeing a lot of what's known as the audience effect. People, when they go in front of an audience, even of only one or two people, they suddenly have to like, take what they're saying more seriously. And, and you know, they, they, they sharpen the way they think. Studies show people write longer. Um, they write more complicated things. They remember what they're thinking about better because the, for, the act of writing it uh, taps into the generation effect. And it's funny, like, I always tell people, try this sometime. Find a friend of yours who's tweeting. Um, sit behind them and just watch. Don't talk. Because one of the funny things about watching someone tweet is you realize a lot of people, they start writing, you'll see them start writing a tweet and they'll stop and they'll erase everything. And they'll start again and they'll get four <laughs> words in and they'll erase two words and they'll go at it for like, it'll take them like, you know, two minutes to write a single tweet. And you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, I'm trying to get this right. You know, <laughs> like there's this, there's this, they're, they're, they're confronting uh, the fact that they're not quite sure what they're trying to say. And, and this is, this is what thinking looks like. So I, I think the externalization of all of our thinking, um, by and large has, has had this terrific effect because going before an audience makes you take what you're saying more, more seriously, particularly when you know they're going to come at you if they think you're dumb. Um, and uh, so th that to me is, is, is really one of the keys. It, it runs throughout my entire book as, as probably one of the main effects, what it means to go from being a globe of mostly private thinkers to ones uh, that do a lot more public thinking. And it's just, I mean, every, like, even if I didn't write... Um professionally like it's, I know that everyone I know is writing a paragraph or two every day about something that they enjoy and as soon as you put something out there it immediately gets uh, challenged it's almost like um, interpersonal you know 
peer review immediately takes place. And, yes, uh, yes, yes. And then, yeah. uh, and people can fact check you, and they can tell you, well, maybe you should, you didn't see it this way, and like that sort of converse. I mean, I, don't, I know that we haven't had these things for very long, but it's so strange to me that we don't remember the time before when nothing like that yep. was taking place every day. Yeah, I, I think I think it is. This is again. This is a, a classic bias of the sort that that you, you've you've spent the last couple of years unpacking. This is a classic recency bias, a present focused bias. Um, it's very hard to go back and remember, um, you know, what that world was like. Um, but I can tell you from my own experience. I mean, I've been doing journalism um, professionally for about twenty years now, and and I have, and it has the fact that the audience can now talk back to me. The fact that, the, and more importantly, that they can talk to each other about what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And so, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense they will say that to each other and I will witness them going, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. It has had this absolutely catalyzing influence in my writing. I am a more careful researcher. I'm, a, I'm, I'm more paranoid to make sure I'm, I'm dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. And I mean paranoid in a good way. I don't mean in a bad way. I mean like this is, this is exactly like you said. It's like a form of peer review. Um, and, uh, and sure enough, every time... I do something uh, with professional writing or even with blogging. Um, people, uh, people come, uh, you know, come up with like stuff that I hadn't thought of, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is this. <laughs> I, I, I wish I'd known this before I started writing. Oh yeah. In fact, it's actually, in fact, it's changed the way I write because now what I start, I've realized what I, I need to tap into this collective smarts, this generosity of people, in that whenever I'm now when I'm working on a Wired column or something, I just I start tweeting a bit about what it is I'm doing, and people will. Will will raise issues, raise ideas, suggest resources, and it is this absolute intellectual boon uh, to what I'm doing. I, my writing has gotten better because I do more of my thinking in public. And I, and you you write about in the book that's probably true for anyone who's creating anything because now if you're making a video or whatever, you're going to go on YouTube, you're going to see other examples of what people are making that is similar to what you're thinking about making, and then you might think to yourself, oh my god, somebody's already made that thing, so I need to make something different or better, or I can borrow these techniques, or it's it's at every direction, everyone is feeding off everyone else's production, and so um, you're more aware of what what came before you and what is uh, what your actual peer group is, where before you may have um, just been cut off from all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, and you, you had to do a lot more reinventing of the wheel because you, you did you couldn't see any examples of what it is you're trying to do. You couldn't talk to other people about it. Um, this is, I mean, this is this is really the other great effect that. I've found when I talk to people, and like, and the thing, the thing about my book that uh, that that I that uh, that I tried to do when I was writing this was not just to base it in sort of my theory of how the world works, you know, sitting at my desk. I, I'm I'm a I'm a reporter, so whenever I'm whenever I there's something I want to know how, what's going on, I just basically hit the streets and talk to people. Um, and 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 frankly, you know, a lot of the times what I what I thought the way I thought the world worked at my desk would turn out to not quite be the way it does in reality. But the uh, but. That's a roundabout way of saying, you know, when I would, the one thing message I heard from people, the more I talked to them was that what the internet was really good at doing was decreasing intellectual isolation, mm-hmm. um, de- decreasing the, the, the sense of, wow, I'm the only one who cares about this, or I'm trying to think through this or do this and I can't find anyone else who can show me or help me, um, that's gone. To to the curious person, um, and not everyone is curious, but to the curious person, this has been an absolute godsend. Um, I know we're about to run out of time. I I promised uh, someone on on the Facebook page I would deliver their question directly to you. And uh, this comes from Pete Sessa. 
Um, and his question is, there's like 11 questions, but I'll try to condense it. Um, he wants to know, what does Clive think of iPads for children? Specifically, he believes that there is an argument against iPads because it detracts from FaceTime, hampers emotional development, takes away tactile skills, and um, doesn't allow children to uh, do exploratory play that fosters critical thinking. So... Yeah, uh, he, he's uh, he, he's right. I talk. I, I don't talk about this a lot in my book, so I can unpack it more now. Um, my the research that I've seen and that's generally accepted in child development um, argues that when kids are very young, and we're talking like you know one to like you know sort of five, uh, even even older, uh, but but certainly when they're very young, a lot of their th- a lot of their thinking is done you know as. Um, uh, um, as uh, Maria Montessori would say, you know, with the hands, with the body, uh, with the eyes. And so it's best, it's, kids learn best with stuff that's very physical. Um, now, iPads are not unphysical, um, but, uh, but really, you know, and you can see this when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're teaching kids counting, when you're teaching them letters, um, having stuff that they manipulate physically, it's a really embodied form of intelligence. So I think that, I, I generally agree when, when educators say that you, sh- you shouldn't rely on screen-based stuff very much in the young ages. It's something to introduce in the older ages when you're starting to get into more abstract thought, um, and forms of research and collaboration that are, you know, uh, that are at a higher level, uh, that are text-based. That's when you can bring in the public thinking. That's when you can bring in the, the you know, the, the interactions with audiences. That's when you can bring in the uh, the interactions with this huge world of knowledge. Um, so, so what, what I what I see all the intelligent teachers doing, the ones I classrooms I went to and the successes they were having, was that they ease that stuff in later on. And so I strongly, and 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 the truth is, I mean, I also believe this for adults too. I mean, I think, I think for, we don't stop being physical thinkers, you know, um, the, uh, in fact, one of the things that I've found pleasant about, about in a weird way, YouTube is that it has reintegrated a lot of physical knowledge because you, you know, like I, I decided I want to build a, uh, you know, a, a cigar box guitar and, um, I had stopped doing wood shop in high school, or I guess earlier high school. So I buy these high powered tools and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to cut my fingers off. If I, if I don't, you know, at least figure out how to use these, there's no one around to train me. I go into YouTube. There's all these, all these great people sort of formalizing this very sophisticated physical knowledge and saying here, you, you know, they're showing me how to use this stuff. It's not as good as being there physically in a workshop being trained, but it's pretty darn good. And so, as I say, I think that's, I think it's no mistake or no surprise or coincidence that the maker movement, um, this, this reintegration of physical intelligence and hand intelligence, uh, you know, in, with kids in, in high school and even adults has gone in lockstep with the fact that we can we can sort of record and show each other um, these these feats of physical thinking, um, and I, I, I basically so I agree with your I agree with your um, with uh, with what your uh, your the, your correspondent is saying with young kids, and I would extend it even to older older folks. I think it's good for all of us to be doing physical stuff and learning in physical ways. It it all comes back to and you you talk about this a great deal in the book is that. Um, we just we shouldn't just be passive and and let this roll over us. We should figure out the best way to do all these things. Yeah. Um, and that's true for like uh, I say this all the time. Whenever if once you learn about certain aspects of the mind that we that we are pretty sure we understand, that it's it, you you become astonished that those things are not then also translating into how we do 
the legal system or politics. Yeah. Like uh, like memory, for example, we were talking about earlier. Like if, if memory is so bad, then how can we still have eyewitness testimony? It's not like we have it. Oh my God. Yeah. We've known yeah. we've yeah. done that for a long, long time. Um, yeah. yeah. But then again, like like you're talking about with the iPad or or YouTube or anything, any of these new tech tools, they're also best practices that you can uh, that are readily available. People have are doing work that tells you. Hey, this is how you should be doing this. It's the best way to do this, and it, we should we, we owe it to ourselves to um, to learn those things as a the, well, and, and, and as a society. And this is and this is the thing is that like you know like there has never really been a, a new thinking tool that did not require training and learning and exploration. You know, I mean, like so you know the 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 book you know is a wonderful thinking tool, but it took it took a long time of figuring out how to format it so it worked well. The first books, you know, no paragraph bakes, no 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 table of contents, no page numbers. And so you read the book and there was no way to go back and re-refer to stuff. And it took like decades, even centuries, to formalize that tool into something that would be as suitable for deep reading as for um as for sort of flipping through and referring. And uh, and then and then when the library came along, I mean the a research library requires you to to, to be trained in how to use it before it will reveal its 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 utility, and and there's really nothing different about our modern world. You're exactly right. It 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 is behooves all of us, and particularly the educational system, is is where the rubber really hits the road to start figuring out. Uh, and integrating this stuff into the classroom. Right now, it's it's slow. Uh, the best stuff is being done by librarians because they're not hobbled by any curriculum. They can just get a hold of the kids and show them really cool stuff. Uh, but I, I'm pretty confident that uh, that this stuff will un- will unfold um, uh, along those lines. Clyde, I could talk to you about this for 17 hours straight, um, but I've got to stop somewhere. I'm going to stop here. Um, but if somebody wanted to keep up with you online and figure out what you're up to, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, the, pl- the place I'm most active is on Twitter. Uh, I am at Pomeranian99. Uh, that is the little fluffy uh, caramel colored dog, the Pomeranian um, 99. Uh, and I also uh, blog irregularly at collisiondetection.net. Um, and if, if anyone wants to email me directly, they can email me at clive at clivethompson.net. So those are three ways uh, to go about it. And I'd, I'd love to hear directly from anyone if they have a question or something they want, they want to talk about. That's awesome. What are you, and what are you working on right now? What's in the future? Um, I'm doing a story for um, Wired about quantum computing, uh, the world's first quantum computer and and uh, what makes it work. I also have another uh, one or two books that I am in the middle of baking. Uh, I can't talk about them yet because I will I will spoil everything if I talk about them. But um, once I once I know I'm doing them, I'm going to be out there public thinking a ton about them. So <laughs> great. Well, so thank you so much for coming on. It was wonderful. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for having me out. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is part of the Boing Boing network of podcasts, a family, if you will, of insanely cool podcasts about a variety of really interesting things. The newest podcast in the Boing Boing family is Not Playing. The Not Playing podcast is this uh, really cool idea. Um, It's hosted by Lex Friedman and Dan Morin, and in each episode, they watch movies that neither person has ever seen, but that everyone else it seems like has um and they have two versions of the podcast so sort of a capsule version and then there's also a commentary track version and you can listen to what they think before and after each episode or you can listen to the long one when you can just uh watch the entire movie with a full commentary track what a cool idea um 
So I want you to check that out. It's over at boingboing.net slash category slash podcast. But just go to boingboing.net and click on podcast. You'll go right to all the podcasts in the network. And uh, you can check out this new podcast that I think is really cool. What a cool idea. The Not Playing Podcast over at boingboing.net. Now what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study right after I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com, and if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos of the finished cookie and everything else over at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page where you can find all the recipes featured on the show so far. Now, this week's recipe is uh, really cool. It comes from Dr. Joy Swan, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Social Sciences at the School of Media, Culture, and Design at Woodbury University. And um, so... What I've got here is a cookie that is called the Chewy Rosemary Sugar Cookie. It uses all-purpose flour and baking soda, salt, and cinnamon, lots and lots of butter, white sugar, two eggs, vanilla extract, almond extract, and um, fresh chopped rosemary as a topping, which I thought was really weird. And um, so I'm going to taste this. We're going to discover how weird it really is. So here, let me get a bite of this. What? What? Hmm. Okay. So, the very first bite of this cookie, I I was like, I don't like this. But then immediately thereafter, as all of the aromas and the, everything is like, atomizing on my tongue and flowing through my sinuses and everything i've never had anything like this in my entire life it feels like um something from a a distant foreign land it doesn't taste like a cookie that i've ever had here before it tastes alien and fantastic let me try let me get another bite mm. oh yeah Oh, yeah. Oh, mm, yeah. Okay. That is weird. So weird. Okay. What is it? First of all, it's very crispy, crunchy on the outside. Crispy, crispy, crispy on the outside. And then it has a chewy center. But the rosemary mixed with what tastes like um, a really um, unsafe amount of butter um, for a cookie of its size, the rosemary mixes with all that. And it's sort of a, it's basically, it's sort of a sugar cookie with rosemary. Um, if you want to get that in your mind and the rosemary gives it like this flowery, um, plant flower, uh, fresh spring, um, strange perfumey flavor on top of the cookie that when you first bite into it, you're like, no, thank you. But then immediately as you start chewing it and it starts to sort of 
turn into a cloud of um, a weird and amazing mixture of flavors starts to happen. And um, I like it. I would make more of these. And I, um, I would like to give these to people and have them bite into them and watch their faces. They go, I don't know about this. Oh, I do know about this. I want more of this. Okay. Thank you very much. That's what happens when you get a PhD. You come up with cookies like this and, um, and you blow people's minds from, a, from um, across the country. Wow. So good. Thank you, Dr. Joy Swan of Woodbury University, all the way over there in California. You came up with an insane cookie that I love. So you will get a signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb. And you will fuel my brain as we talk about this interesting bit of news from the world of self-delusion. So I found this article over at BBC Future, uh, written by Tom Stafford. And you may have heard of him. He's also uh, part of MindHacks.com, a really great website with all sorts of fun stuff on there. And this article over at BBC Future, it's at BBC.com. And you can find it by uh, Googling this headline, How the Way We Walk Can Increase Risk of Being Mugged. And that is such an awesome headline. And it's really cool. The subheadline is the way people move can influence the likelihood of an attack by a stranger. The good news, though, is that altering it can reduce the chances of being targeted. And so what uh, Tom Stafford has done is he's written this great article and it goes into detail about how in the 1980s, psychologists in New York recorded people. They filmed people walking around on the streets and then they showed those films to inmates at a prison, violent inmates. And they ask those inmates to, hey, looking at these people, which ones do you think would be the easiest to attack or to rob or whatever? And um, they had them rate them on a scale of one to ten. Um, and the name, the name of the scale was ease of assault scale. Um, and then they took that data and they went over to um, a group of professional dancers and they asked the dancers to look at the films and uh, rate people on how coordinated they were. And uh, to identify how people, uh, in, using the eyes of a dancer, thinking about the way how a dancer has a command over posture and, and being able to walk and move the body, um, looking at these people, who was the most coordinated and least coordinated. And what they found was well, that the, the people who were not very coordinated were also the ones that the uh, prisoners said would be easy targets. And it was a nice, weird correlation that showed that the way a person walks can influence the way they're seen by a predator of, of some sort. But of course, there are all these confounding variables that go into that. And they talk about that in this article. Um, those variables would be, you can just think of, a, you can think of all sorts of things like uh, the gender of the person or um, the, the, the obvious socioeconomic status based on what they're wearing, uh, the clothes themselves, how they're concealing or um, how they are revealing different types of uh, walking uh, motions and all sorts of things. You can imagine that there's a, a bazillion variables that could make this uh, data messy. So fast forward to close to the present day and they redid this research. And in this time they used the, the modern technique, you know, when they do like motion capture for movies or video games and they just reduce people to dots, uh, you know, like, they just look like a stick figure. All you can see are the um, lines of the arms and legs and the, the, uh, the joints or little balls. Um, that's what they did. They reduced everyone into those figures and then they redid the research. And sure enough, even when the, your, the human body is reduced to its most basic form, 
it still worked out the same way. The uh, the people who were the least coordinated in the eyes of a dancer were the ones who were most likely to be mugged um, in the eyes of a criminal. And the article ends by suggesting that you can uh, learn to, um, and they've done some research into this, that you can learn to walk in a more confident and uh, coordinated way and it skews the, uh, the predatory eyes will then no longer see you as easy prey. So that's a really fantastic and amazing article over at BBC Future, bbc.com. I believe it's also reprinted at um, mindhacks.com. And it's called How the Way We Walk Can Increase the Risk of Being Mugged. Amazing stuff. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can go over to youarenotsosmart.com and find not only previous episodes of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, but links to everything that we talked about today. You can also find You Are Not So Smart t-shirts, including the Confirmation Bias t-shirt and the Benjamin Franklin Effect coffee mug. Oh my God, somebody should get that for Christmas. Maybe you should get that for Christmas or give that to someone that you love very dearly. Now, if you want to know the song at the beginning of the episode, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And please visit boingboing.net for more great podcasts.